Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 37 Dawn of the Justice League I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer son Welcome to Mosaic. I'm your DC Films apologist, Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and are excited by the Justice League universe. We're going to answer the questions raised by the JLU as we eagerly anticipate each and every DC film. This episode, we talk about DC's strategy, the new BVS footage, our first look at Wonder Woman, and do a Suicide Squad trailer breakdown. It's the dawn of the Justice League. This podcast dives deep into the Justice League universe to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate the films that make up the Justice League universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. With a cornucopia of content that we've been blessed with since the last episode, there's no way that I can cover it all. But basically, we're going to discuss everything in four big blocks. First, we're going to talk a little bit about DC's incredible overall strategy. Then we're going to touch on the new Batman v Superman footage. We'll discuss our first look at Wonder Woman, and finally, we're going to take a look at that amazing Suicide Squad trailer. We're just basically following the outline of that DC film special, which I'm busting at the seams to talk about. While I can't cover everything, to kick it off, I just want to talk about how clear it is that there is a plan and an overall strategy to everything. The marketing blitz is in full effect. There's the obvious things, like new merchandise, a new soundtrack, those premium TV spots, the interviews, and this TV special. But then there's some of the slightly more subtle proofs of production. We have the cast and crew interviews that are likely coming from bonus or promotional content, concept art, changes in visual effects or color grading, and this measured amount of information that's being released. Even the order and the manner that those announcements are being made, even right down to assigning the official release dates a few days after this CW special. But specifically what I want to talk about is how incredibly smart the much maligned second Batman v Superman trailer is in terms of the overall strategy now that we've been thrilled by the first official Suicide Squad trailer. This is a coherent, cohesive, cooperative, shared universe tied together right even down to the way that they release the trailers. Consider just how much was held back in that Suicide Squad Comic-Con first look. They held back those visual effects, the magic, and some of the wackier elements like Captain Boomerang. The Comic-Con first look was remarkably grounded, and it's almost positively reserved when compared to this recent trailer, to the point that I was questioning whether or even how magic would be involved when I was reacting to that first look. And actually, real quick, I know that there's going to be a point of confusion because the Comic-Con first look wasn't billed as a trailer, so for clarity's sake, let's call that Comic-Con first look the Bee Gees trailer, and the Dawn of the Justice League first official trailer the Queen trailer, okay? Those are the respective bands for the soundtracks, got it? If I slip up, figure it out from context, (laughs) alright? 
Anyways, imagine going from the grounded man of steel to the gravity and the seriousness of Batman v Superman's Comic-Con trailer and then jumping straight into this Queen trailer. Without the Bee Gees trailer or the second BVS trailer, the films would seem completely at odds with one another. One film completely serious, sincere, and realistic, while this other film is sarcastic, cheeky, self-deprecating, and utterly over the top. If that was how these films were presented, we'd think that DC Films has no vision or overall plan for the Justice League universe. But that's not what happened. Instead, we got a series of trailers between two different films that each built upon the other. With the first BVS Comic-Con trailer, we were fed atmosphere and the themes that continued from Man of Steel. But we also started to incorporate the more gothic and fanciful elements of Batman and the larger DC universe. And then with the Bee Gees trailer, we were shown that the Suicide Squad melds with that, that they have a grounded and serious base while giving us more hints of a world beyond, pushing us towards hints of magic, metahumans, and the impossibly skilled, showing us that seedy underbelly of government overreach. And that lets the second BVS trailer push deeper into the world with a nightmarish apocalyptic scene of winged insect soldiers, a mad scientist resurrecting the dead, impossible lightning, arcing over a facility that's encompassing an alien vessel, insane science fiction explosions, and finally all the implications of Doomsday and Wonder Woman. With that trailer, Suicide Squad can finally come right out and show what it is. In a world that can manifest the psychologies of of the Batman or Lex Luthor, the madness and the monsters of the squad make sense. When Senator Finch and Luthor scheme and overreach, Waller and the squad are more plausible. When you see Batman's hyper-competence or Wonder Woman's warrior skills, the martial arts tropes that they introduce make Katana, Deadshot, Harley, and the like work. Batman's gadgets pave the way for Slipknot and Deadshot. Wonder Woman's magic shield and bracelets make Katana's sword and Enchantress reasonable. And Doomsday shows the potential for more metahuman powers like Diablo, and his presence makes Incubus less confronting. Even something like Luther's exuberant performance paves the way so that Captain Boomerang can steal the show in the Queen trailer. These trailers are bridging even the levels of humor between the films. And essentially, the carefully calculated strategy of the trailers is the same one for the Justice League universe. Snyder promised to move the ball to where the Justice League would make sense. And that means that Batman v Superman has to move the ball to where Suicide Squad makes sense. And from everything that we're seeing, the Brain Trust is delivering on that promise. From the completely authentic reality of Man of Steel, Batman v Superman takes just the right strategic steps, leaps, and bounds necessary for us to buy everything in the Suicide Squad trailer without any qualms whatsoever. And then Suicide Squad is going to cement the world of the weird, especially with regards to magic, and that lets us get into the Wonder Woman film without apology. Batman v Superman establishes the groundwork for magic with Wonder Woman, and then Suicide Squad will normalize Soul Taker swords, subway slicing succubi, and portals to hell such that the elements of Wonder Woman work in her film. It all fits together smartly, and that's just what we've been strategically shown through the trailers and the marketing, with much more world building in store in the actual films themselves. Honestly, I was a little bit worried about whether or how Suicide Squad was going to fit into this lineup, but now it makes perfect sense. Not just as some sort of palette cleanser or market gimmick, but as an integral part 
of the world building of this universe. The villains of Suicide Squad flesh out the world and make the heroes relevant to it. I think they're absolutely going to make good on the WB's pedigree of epicness, allowing reality and comic book lore to act as backstops and to fill out all those little details that runtime won't allow. In other words, like we've been doing all along with this podcast, we don't need the films to spoon feed us explanations of how every little thing works because all we need to do is defer to reality, reason, and logic for the answers and to fill in any alleged blanks. That kind of approach doesn't work for more fanciful takes on storytelling, but here it's going to make the JLU films richer without having to read hundreds of pages of dry, mythopoetic appendices. We just have to consider the real world and perhaps sometimes remind the critics to do that too. Okay, you get the idea. I'm excited beyond belief that the way that they're staggering the revelations in the trailers reflect the strategy that they have on how the entire universe and all their films are going to interlock. It's an amazing opportunity to bring them all together into a single world. Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, The Flash, Aquaman, and countless others. A big surprise for the fans, it's going to be how interconnected all these movies are. Now is the time to bring everything together. Man, oh man, hearing Snyder, Ayer, and Jenkins all on the same page, these three brilliant, smart, edgy directors working together, I've got chills, and I'm totally dorking out. Yeah, okay. Storytelling strategy is, of course, the most important thing. But just to quickly comment on the branding aspect of marketing strategy, this special brings us our first official overarching branding. We have DC Films and we have the Justice League universe. DC Films is clearly official branding. The special was entitled DC Films Presents. And that logo was prominently displayed throughout the special behind the cast and crew on the set and used by both our hosts. While at this time it's unclear, clear whether DC Films is an entity like Marvel Studios or if it's simply branding, it's unquestionable that this is what they've selected and are going with, and I like it. It's simple, it's unambiguous, clear, and concise. It makes for a nice minimalistic logo, it doesn't suffer the confusion of extended or the length of cinematic. And this seems to be a market trend, as Star Wars recently rebranded their anthology films as simply stories. The next brand to be adopted is the Justice League Universe. That's a term that Charles Rovin has been using for months and which popped up again and again during this special. It's used by both hosts, one of them being an executive insider, to describe the upcoming slate of films. One of the things that we're doing when we're bringing together this the DC Justice League Universe, we're creating not only stories that work for the individual film, but they have some resonance the other films that we're doing. DC Films and Warner Brothers Pictures finally bringing the Justice League universe to the big screen. The Justice League universe. Joker and the other villains of the Justice League universe. Villainy of the Justice League universe. DC Films and Warner Brothers Pictures are kicking open the doors on their Justice League universe. The Justice League universe isn't just these characters coming together, it's eight mythologies crashing in 29. To me, that's the magic. As you can hear, over and over again, this isn't a slip of the tongue, this is intentional and official branding. 
interesting. Not mentioned was the Shazam film, Dark Universe, or Sandman, perhaps being relegated to separate continuities. Of course, the Justice League film themselves were never mentioned, so take that as you will. Regardless, producing an original special and taking up to half an hour of national network airtime is a pretty clear and official statement of intent. So for my part, I'm adopting DC Films and Justice League Universe unless and until I'm told otherwise. If I slip up and say Cinematic Universe or DCCU, don't be a pedant. Those terms still apply as accurate generic descriptions, just not as intentional or intended branding. I'm not sure the same can be said of the Extended Universe or DCEU at this point, which appears to be retired, but to each his own. That's enough strategy talk. Let's get to the content, and we're going to follow the rough outline of that TV special, Batman v Superman, Wonder Woman, and then wrapping with Suicide Squad. I don't have time to go over each and every shot, but let's just pick a few of the highlights. So another thing that the second BVS trailer did was give us the framework to have this special and this discussion. Imagine if they had to hold back Wonder Woman, Doomsday, and the fact that this was all going towards the League. That would have been a very boring TV special. <laughs> I bring this up because despite getting so many new shots within this special, basically nothing is given away. Everything builds on something that we already knew, or it remains a complete mystery to us. Marketing knows what they're doing, even if armchair critics like to propose alternatives without knowing what Warner Brothers knows. So on that note, we get a gorgeous shot of Superman walking down the halls of the Capitol building, and it's perfect. It encapsulates what Man of Steel was and is setting up Batman v Superman to handle. What if Superman were in the real world striding down a hallway? Well, people stop and look. And again, I'm moved by the idea that Superman is humbling himself to attend a congressional hearing. He's not floating down the hallway. He's not using super speed, but he's moving as a man. And at the same time, he's not giving up his station. He isn't dressed in earthling clothing, but in the uniform of his position. In Man of Steel, he was escorted by soldiers and in chains. This time, he's trusted to roam the seat of government on his own, even if he's being called to task in the hearing itself. I'm getting more and more excited by the potential of this scene in the actual film. There's a lot of analysis we can apply to all the times that Superman descends or opts not to fly, but that's another show. <laughs> all of that was just one shot. I'm not going to make it if I'm not more selective, but I can't help myself. Let's touch on Cavill's comments and the Superman line. Superman has made the leap, and now he's out there for everyone to call judgment on. All this time, I've been thinking I'm here to do good. Superman was never real. This means something. Notice Cavill's choice of words. Superman made the leap. Now, what leap? He's hearkening back to Man of Steel and the advice given to him. Sometimes, you have to take a leap of faith first. The trust part comes later. And that's certainly how Man of Steel ended and how Batman v Superman will resolve. Superman took the leap, but Batman and the world's trust comes later. But before Batman can trust him, Superman has to deal with the fallout, the distrust, and the disillusionment. The people stumbling and falling. All this time I've been thinking I'm here to do good. Superman was never real. And this hits on something that we've discussed before, and we predicted that Batman v Superman would tackle. That the idea of being a public superhero, or the persona of Superman, is non-obvious, even after defeating Zod. Zod forced his hand, so he had to debut. But nothing required that he keep acting as a public superhero. There's no reason he couldn't have retreated back into anonymity and continued to help as a guardian angel. Yet, that's not what he does. What he does is he takes Jonathan Kent's aspirations for him to stay 
stand proud in front of the human race. And then he takes Jor-El's aspirations for him to be a beacon of hope, and he integrates them. However, as we've discussed before on the show, being and representing an ideal isn't easy, and trials and discouragement should be anticipated and not seen as condemnation or failure of that ideal. Stories with optimists who never truly are tested, they ring a little hollow. And here, Batman v Superman sidesteps that with Superman undergoing soul-searching and finding support and character development with Lois and Martha. Speaking of how pursuit of an ideal comes with tribulations, we come to Batman. At the end of Man of Steel, Zod was fighting Superman. There was lasers ripping apart buildings and things were blowing up. Bruce Wayne blamed Superman. Now, for me, that line is a slightly bitter pill to swallow, but I have faith in where it's going, and we'll talk about that in just a second. The marketing and this TV special doesn't beat around the bush. Kevin Smith gets right to it. To explain for those that don't know, why are these two titans fight? Well, you got to remember, this is the first time Superman ever meets Batman. Batman knows Superman was involved with something that had fire come down from the sky and destroy Metropolis. There are a number of different ways that we've evolved both Batman and Bruce Wayne in this movie. He's older, darker more world-weary. And as Affleck is talking about Batman's descent, we see Wayne Manor in ruins, and Bruce Wayne with flowers, most likely intending to pay his respects at his parents' mausoleum. Imagine the frustration of dedicating two decades of your life in the memory of your parents, only to have the homestead bearing their names crumble, and everything that you've ever fought to protect jeopardized by alien entities who could wipe you out in a second. I've explained in the past why I think blaming Superman is unjustified, but here Hearing how weary Batman is gets me excited, not because that that's my ideal Batman, but because this is before the dawn. Superman is going to show him the light. A constant theme for Batman is family, the loss of the family, and then the replacement of that family with a surrogate father and a surrogate son. And this appears to be a Batman who went through that loss all over again. And that would be enough reason for anyone to give up hope. But I honestly believe that when they're done punching each other in the face, Batman is going to have a new brother. The stories where people can triumph over their biases and their cynicism and their hopelessness, the stories where people who are so angry and bitter and alone can find a friend and a comrade and a connection, somebody who can give them a new lease on life and give them back their purpose and to remind them what a hero is and to get somebody who is lost and who has stumbled and fallen to join them in the sun. Those are the stories worth telling. That redemptive arc that goes down to our very core and it's something truly moving and worthy of these icons. That kind of story is part of the reason I really love Man of Steel, which is another show. But for Batman, Batman v Superman. Yes, there's a lot of anger and grave faces in this film, but it's all for a purpose. That purpose is a dawn, a light, the Justice League. And as much as Superman is going to save Batman from his bleak cynicism and anger, Batman is going to save Superman from his isolation and his responsibility. As a public figure and as a symbol, Superman bears the weight of the world on his shoulders. But when he finds out that this world contains men like Batman, women like Wonder Woman, and other incredible allies like Aquaman and The Flash and more, he has others to turn to who can help carry that burden. And we're going to see that character arc where Superman goes from seeing Batman as a criminal, brutal and unforgiving, to being the recipient of Batman's forgiveness and somebody who accepts some of his responsibility. 
possibilities. <laughs> I'm working through all this way too slow. By the way, we get this slightly longer shot of Superman floating before this full screen conflagration, and I have yet to hear a full theory on that, so send those in if you got them. Uh, we can confirm that Batman is delivering the we have to destroy him line to Alfred, and let's just pause to consider what destroy means. Is this Batman openly declaring an intent to kill? Well, we get a quick glimpse of Batman training, and Affleck looks magnificent. The filmmakers know that Batman is built of effort and training, and the film reflects that. And by the same token, the next shot is of some kind of beam device and Bruce at a machine to reflect Batman's intelligence and intellect, his penchant for engineering gadgets and engaging science. And I just want to point out that practically every shot in this entire TV special is gorgeous enough to find its way into a magazine feature. Everything looks good and on point. Okay, I'm doing a terrible job at being selective. I think I'm talking about everything, but that's just because this special has given us so many little new things, like our next shot of Clark at home apparently reading the paper. So much to say, but I'm just going to pare it down to just one comment, which is we're going to see aspects of their social and their personal lives to round out their character. Those things might not be ripe for trailers or marketing, but we're going to get those moments with Lois, Martha, and Perry. Bruce is going to be in boardrooms and ballrooms and trading barbs and quips with Alfred. There is more to this movie that we haven't seen. Okay, I think we can skip some of this stuff and listen to Jesse Eisenberg comment on Lex Luthor. Lex feels competitive with Bruce Wayne. He's learned everything about him. Lex hates Superman. Learned everything about him. I'm not going to overanalyze this, but just consider how much he's saying while at the same time revealing just how much we don't know about what he knows. There is still a ton of mystery and intrigue to this film, folks. We get more shots of the Ground Zero facility, an image of Lex in a sterile white hallway, and then something of a clean room airlock with his hair being blown. We could talk about this so much, but let me just confine myself to two quick comments. First, the giant arcs of lightning help continue and create a precedent for exotic visual effects in this universe, for the future films to continue to build on. And what I mean by that is that most of the sci-fi effects in Man of Steel were exclusively Kryptonian, but here we have a hybrid of human Kryptonian technology producing giant impossible lightning, and that introduces that trope into our visual lexicon. The universe is taking careful steps so that you can eventually accept a man who rides the lightning, a sonic arm cannon, lantern energy constructs, Atlantean sorcery, and more. I can't stress enough how they know what they're doing in acclimating us to a full-blown comic book universe from one that was totally realistic. Second, and I'll keep this short, is again the idea of that hybrid tech and how humanity's approach is contrasted against Kryptonian science. In a previous episode, we talked about the lack of metal and straight lines, and this time we get the sterile and the white versus Kryptonian's organic approach and look. Sometimes we take for granted how sophisticated biology is, and how harnessing it would be arguably more futuristic than anything that looks like an Apple product. So it's interesting to see the melding of the two. Well, we get a new shot of the battle mobile, we see Diana peeling away from Bruce at Lex's event, and everything wraps with the IMAX event footage of Superman and Batman colliding. 
I do want to point out that consistent with a recent interview with Snyder, this special calls out the villains as Lex Luthor and Doomsday. Doomsday is official, and hopefully that should put to rest any questions as to the creature's intended identity. Well, that's enough Batman v Superman for now. Let's talk Wonder Woman. And I'm going to keep saying it, but DC's strategy is so smart. With Wonder Woman over one and a half years out, we're hardly owed an iota of information. But since the movie is filming and set photos are getting out, DC Films strategically chose to give us our first glimpse in order to control our first impressions. The whole segment isn't even 90 seconds, so let's just roll that clip. Wonder Woman's one of the greatest superheroes out there, but people don't know her origin like they know Superman's origin and Batman's origin. True. And so what we want to do in the film is really tell people who she is, where she comes from, and why she does what she does. And we've never seen it on film before. She comes from a Greek mythology. She was born on this island of Amazon. It's called Themyscira. We're gonna see her coming of age, the entire history, what's her mission. These Amazons were once created to protect man's world, but they since abandoned it. And Diana is asking constantly, why don't we go do what we were created to do and protect man? And they say, because they're not worth it. And this takes her on a journey into our world. Telling a story like this now is pivotal and important. The story of a very powerful woman. She's an Amazon warrior. She's the best fighter in the DC universe. She has strength and speed, and she's been training her whole life for war. Wonder Woman has been around for 75 years. Feminist cultural icon. She stands for equality, and that's really important. I think that's why people love the character. The greatest thing about Wonder Woman is how good and kind and loving she is, yet none of that negates any of her power. Come on, man. Wonder Woman on horseback. Dude, take my money. Take all my money. Take my kids tuition money for school. That looks fantastic, dude. I don't have much to say about the commentary. Johns touches on what this film is going to be and her broad origins. It's interesting that he focuses on her skill and her talents as a warrior, but then Jenkins leads in with her kindness and love before mentioning Wonder Woman's power. And it just goes to show that Wonder Woman belongs in the DC Trinity because she's the total package, just like the world's finest, with endless potential for action, power, heart, character, psychology and nuance. In terms of imagery, the entire thing was very credible and cinematic. Just as you'd expect, based on your discussion about color grading previously in this show for Man of Steel, there were heavy filters for a early work in progress. But as an intended result, there was no garish or clashing colors. And despite Wonder Woman's costume, she completely fits into the setting. By and large, the period setting and the selection of shots really reinforces that sense of fantasy and that Lord of the Rings pedigree of epicness. There were, after all, a lot of shots of traveling, horseback through the woods, walking from the shores, crossing a people-packed bridge, riding across a field towards a large structure, be it a factory, a farm, or a barracks, in a tree, in her cloak, doing her best impersonation of an elf, and then finally riding hard against a checkpoint with her fantasy sword drawn. I'm not going to dissect such an early look too much and just focus on the tone of what they're telling us. And from this quick 
quick glimpse alone, we know that there's going to be stretches of quiet character building moments punctuated by blockbuster level action. I have complete confidence in Jenkins as a director and storyteller, and it's okay if the action is delegated to a second unit or stunt coordinators. I think I'm just going to make three quick comments about some specific shots. First, in the shot where Wonder Woman seems distraught, her brow is furrowed and entering a cloud of thick yellow smoke with a slight amount of slow motion to provide that sort of slightly magical fantasy feel. But what I wanted to say is that this glimpse shows that Godot can act and emote, and it's likely that she's seeing the effects of mustard gas or chemical weapons on the battlefield, one of the horrible hallmarks of World War I warfare. Even if it's just the smoke of battle, World War I was generally less romanticized, and being confronted with the horror and the ugliness of something that you've trained your entire life to do could make for some interesting storytelling. That brings me to my second comment, whether Wonder Woman will or does kill. It's certainly become one of her hallmarks in modern continuity, but others feel differently, and in our quick glimpse, we see her use a shield and kicks in combat, and although she does swing her sword from horseback, it could be a disabling strike. At this time, I don't particularly have any strong opinions one way or the other, but it's interesting food for thought. And finally, I just love the shot of Diana trying on her disguise in the mirror. It's an incredibly human moment, and I can't stop myself. Just one more comment. Pretty obviously, her sword and her shield are different from the ones that she has in Batman v Superman. And I'm curious whether there are subtle differences in her costume in the standalone film compared to Batman v Superman. If her weapons can and do change, and we know that her more recent Batman v Superman shield, at a minimum, has the magical properties to survive Doomsday, does that mean that those weapons are fungible and that she can return to Themyscira for replacements? <laughs> okay, just one more thing. All that horseback riding, it's fitting for the period and for Wonder Woman, as we've discussed in our previous Wonder Woman episode about how her first appearance was on horseback, and we talked about the Calvary origins of high-heeled shoes. Although, I think I'm going to decline to comment on footwear this time. <laughs> Okay, I think I'm going to save Aquaman, Flash, Cyborg, and Green Lantern for a future show. For now, it's cool to hear them say all the right things from the stars of each respective film. And it's neat that they're sharing some of the concept art from Comic-Con and putting a little extra presentation polish on it with motion graphics animation, After Effects, and the like. Again, they're giving us more than we have any right to expect, especially the first announcement that we're going to get a Green Lantern core movie and not just a Green Lantern movie. Lots and lots of thoughts and comments about all of this, but no time to talk about it in this episode if we're going to get to that awesome Suicide Squad trailer. Here it is, just to refresh your memory. Roll it. Is this the real life? Let me out of here, Donald, please. Let me out of here, Martin. Is this just fantasy? Come on! Caught in a landslide. No escape from reality. I want to assemble a task force of the most dangerous people on the planet. They're bad guys. Worst of the worst. Too late. Open the gate! My time has come. Since Was this, uh, cheerleading trials? Hi, boys. Goodbye, everybody. Deadshot. Guy shoots people. He's a crocodile. And he eats people. Burns people. You're possessed by a witch. Mm, she's just crazy. What was that? I should kill everyone and escape? Sorry. The voices. <laughs> I'm kidding. That's not what they really said. This is the deal. No, 
You're going somewhere very bad. To do something that'll get you killed. Let's go save the world. I can't wait to show you my toys. Let's do something fun. Seriously, what the hell's wrong with you people? We're bad guys. It's what we do. Nothing really matters to me. Oh man, where to begin? Let me just start with my quick overall impressions. It was magical, charming, upbeat, funny, impressive, and intriguing. You could not ask for a better trailer for this type of film. For me, Bohemian Rhapsody already gets me more than half the way there. You've heard me say it before, but I'm not a music guy. But even my sequestered ears managed to intersect with Queen through two of my favorite cult classics, Flash Gordon and Highlander, especially the latter. I've been caught humming the hooks to Princes of the Universe or Who Wants to Live Forever enough times to receive a Queen mixtape, which pretty much lived in my tape deck and became the soundtrack of nearly all my driving back then. So Queen works incredibly for me, and I'm sure I'm not alone. Bohemian Rhapsody is a pillar of classic rock and an all-time bestseller and a chart topper throughout global markets, especially in the UK, where there's been numerous documentaries done on just this song alone. But I promise not to derail this into a Bohemian Rhapsody love fest as badly as I want to play clips of English literature scholars trying to decipher its meaning. You can check that out for yourself in the 2004 BBC documentary the story of Bohemian Rhapsody, and this is all going somewhere, aside from the sheer popularity, nostalgia, and perfect tonal accompaniment, the entire theme of classic rock continues to pop up as a broad and guiding style to this film. In the same way that H.R. Geiger and Heavy Metal Magazine drove the aesthetic choices of Man of Steel's Krypton, it's clear that the filmmakers in Suicide Squad keep dipping into rock music for guidance. Of course, we have the selection of the Bee Gees and Queen, but Harley takes after Debbie Harry of the band Blondie, specifically as she's pictured in her iconic punk magazine shoot, which featured her signature two-tone vulture t-shirt, metal-studded belt, and black leather underwear. Harley's Suicide Squad look is an obvious homage. Joker's look has been said to be inspired by the late great David Bowie, perhaps in part influenced specifically by Grant Morrison's Batman R.I.P. run, which clearly and obviously referenced Bowie by titling one of the issues The Thin White Duke of Death, as Bowie had a stage persona called The Thin White Duke. And in the next year, in an interview with Wired Magazine, Neil Gaiman would fancast David Bowie as the Joker for a live-action DKR adaptation. Joker is, of course, played by Jared Leto, and among
among his many talents is the lead singer of 30 Seconds to Mars, an alternative rock band. That theme carries through the tattoos, the graffiti, the skull motifs, the pyrotechnics, the monsters, the color schemes, the guns, the spikes, and more. The trailer isn't just trading on feelings for a pop song. The music goes right to its soul, its identity, its bones, and its foundation. And for me, and I think a lot of others, this trailer was an aha moment for when we got what this film was going to be. The Bee Gees cover was a haunting remix that made us intrigued, but Queen was a declaration. We're going to be quirky and soulful and funny and tragic and rock. And we're going to be a little bit of nonsense, but you're going to love us anyways. It's a bit too early to tell, but I think Suicide Squad is going to be relatively light on play plot, but really deliver in character and emotion and mayhem. Ayer's films tend to have relatively straightforward plot descriptions, but the complexity, the art, and the nuance comes out of the humanity of the performances and the interactions. It's not about A to B, it's about the journey. And perhaps Bohemian Rhapsody is the same, where we have a strong sense of engagement and empathy, but the literal plot of the song isn't particularly clear or relevant. And I'm rambling. As somebody who doesn't really listen Listen to music. I'm completely overselling this music angle. <laughs> uh, let's move on. I should say that much of my excitement and relief for this trailer also came from seeing the visual effects and their integration with the action. Ayer's track record with action is solid, but I wasn't sure how he was going to handle some of the more supernatural elements, but the trailer delivered a completely seamless combination. It was done great, but I don't want you to forget how the second Batman v Superman trailer got us there. Once you've seen Parademons, Crazy Frankenstein Experiments, and Doomsday, you are absolutely ready for Enchantment and Diablo and Katana. Heck, Killer Croc seems positively grounded by comparison. And I know I keep beating this drum, but I don't want people to think that their acceptance of the Queen trailer comes in a vacuum and to take that for granted. No, they've been carefully calculating the marketing to get us to this point. Okay, okay, let's get to the breakdown. We establish the setting and then we begin almost immediately with a gag. Captain Boomerang pleading and summarily being ignored by an eye-rolling guard, followed by the absurdity of Harley sipping tea while enjoying a trashy romance novel cross-legged in fuzzy pink slippers and with her hair done up. It goes without saying that she seems ridiculously at home and comfortable in an incarceration setting. And it's a funny image that makes us ask, is this just fantasy? This is in stark contrast to her accommodations and her condition in the Bee Gees trailer. Her cage barren, her clothes in tatters, and her hair without her signature red and blue highlights. Harley's hair is undyed in the courtyard introduction so we can roughly sequence her incarceration based on those details. Harley asks Waller if she's the devil and she experiences some fighting with the guards which tears up her clothing. Harley then constructs her aerial swings and does her acrobatics and at some point is recruited into the squad in the courtyard with everyone else and then as a reward for her cooperation she receives the amenities that we see at the beginning of the Queen trailer including a romance novel which is reportedly between the Sheets by Molly O'Keefe. Although this novel was published by Bantham, O'Keefe has several works which were published by Harley Quinn. Coincidence? Yeah, probably. I'm definitely editing all this out. What am I even talking about? Let's see. Um, we cut to uh, Deadshot. He seems weary and broken. We get Crocs, water, and I don't know, is that 
sausage hanging in the background, we get our first unambiguous use of Diablo's pyrotechnic powers. Here, it's absolutely clear that he can control these flames. We saw hints of it before, but you know, there was some ambiguity as to whether he could or not. Boomerang rages at the camera, and that solidifies his caged animal status when we never saw him incarcerated in the BG's trailer. We get a short reprisal of Waller at dinner, and then we get the Warner Brothers picture logo and the DC logo, and they're both packed with design choices. We get the CD not quite functioning neon glow, and the color scheme again is part of that entire rock scene and dissonant theme. The texture on the WB shield and the DC logo is a Harley Quinn motif, that pattern of black, red, and white diamonds, and for a split second, legitimate words get replaced, or rather vandalized, with phoneticized misspellings that seemingly appear only under a black light. You have pictures spelled with a Z, and DC comics misspelled as k-o-m-i-x-z so they're building the theme even into the logos we get a montage of dead shots extraction and a glimpse of military personnel prepping for a medical procedure as croc is wheeled in likely about to receive his exploding implant Deadshot quips about cheerleader tryouts and note that the guard alpha one is still in a wet poncho suggesting that he had just let diablo out of his flooded tube before floyd makes his remark In a courtyard filled with operatives, Boomerang being freed from his body bag immediately proceeds to punch the first available person without the slightest regard for his surroundings. And it's funny, and it perfectly characterizes him as angry, violent, and unhinged. There's no way he's going to win against an entire yard filled with spec ops, but he just can't resist the impulse to hit someone. We also see Slipknot flanked by two FBI agents who knocks out a female agent before being held back. And that plainly establishes Slipknot's villainy, and it suggests perhaps that he is a new arrival, transferred from a recent capture or perhaps another facility. So if he hasn't been subject to Bell Rev and Waller's administrations, perhaps he's less familiar with the consequences and therefore less inclined to stay in line down the road. Harley makes her appearance with High Boys, and then we get to Flag, who is reviewing the files of his prospective team members while being glib about their abilities. We can glean a few interesting tidbits from Deadshot's file. It seems that Floyd has committed at least four murders between 2014 and 2015 in Gotham City, New Jersey. Now, granted, that's my interpretation of some blurry pixels, even from the three gigabyte trailer, and I've discussed my stance on the canonicity of print on props before, but if we take those details at face value, it suggests that we have a rough timeline for the main Suicide Squad mission, that is, excluding flashbacks, likely taking place square after Batman v Superman. It also means that Floyd hasn't been incarcerated that long, which is good for the maintenance of his skills and also his non-institutionalized mindset. It also suggests some ambiguous geography for Gotham since we're told it's near its sister city, Metropolis, which resides in the federal district of Metropolis near the Chesapeake Bay, but here also within the state of New Jersey. At the end of the day, these are fictitious cities that don't actually exist, so I'm perfectly fine with a little ambiguity as to their real-world location.
location. Springfield is no less a rich setting for the failure to place it precisely on a map. And using this as a point of criticism is subjective hair splitting. Are fictitious nations better or worse than fictitious cities or made up landmarks and skyscrapers in some of the best known skylines in the world? Granular versus macro. There is no right or wrong on this. Really only preference and execution. And as they say, the gustibus non est disputantum in matters of taste, there can be no disputes. We've discussed this before. Just please excuse this tangent. Back to Flag. Behind him is June Moon, who's strangely studying and stroking the back of Flag's head. Why? That is weird and unsettling. Maybe it's affection as he's scanning the files of killers and monsters. Maybe she thinks he needs a haircut. Maybe she's examining the scar left by the implantation of a bomb. Or maybe she's studying where she's going to jam a pair of scissors. Between this and their intimacy in the BG's trailer, I can't get a read on what their relative relationship is, especially if Flag's voiceover is taken at face value. You're possessed by a witch, which means that he's saying to somebody presently possessed but before the assembly of the team, and yet they seem to go out on a mission without her on it. It's all really intriguing and sets up a lot of questions on how things could shake out. While Flag is giving his rundown, we see an update on Killer Croc's eyes, which is amazing. It's a small detail which somehow vastly improves the look. His eyes belong with that face and skin, rather than looking like eyes that are looking out from behind a mask. We get our first look at the visual effects around Enchantress, updated from our first look in the Bee Gees trailer, and we'll get into those visual effects later, but for now, I just want to point out the set Based on the wallpaper and the lighting, it seems like the same location in the Bee Gees trailer, where Enchantress stood in front of a mirror framed with photos and notes. While we can't make out the photos, we can tell that the people pictured are black. Here, in the Queen trailer, Enchantress is putting a finger to her mouth. It's a gesture meant to communicate to somebody else in the room. Putting that all together, does that mean that Enchantress is in the home of Amanda Waller or Deadshot and perhaps threatening them either directly or indirectly? You can get a very complicated game of conflicting interests depending on how this all plays out. Imagine if Waller has the squad under duress to take Enchantress out, but then Enchantress puts Waller under duress to cancel the squad. So then the squad has to decide whether to go along with Waller's original mission or Waller's immediate position. I'm not saying that's what's happening, but the fact that the marketing supports even entertaining this kind of possibility is incredible. Ayer loves to set up moral dilemmas and quandaries in his writing to get to that human condition and psyche and this kind of test of loyalties of selfishness versus the greater good freedom and duress rebellion and teamwork allows for this rich stew of all those kind of interactions if we look back to the bg's trailer there's this single brief shot of deadshot clearly conflicted about whether to take a shot or not and man i'm just excited by all these possibilities now back to the rundown we get a glimpse of harley laughing seemingly a part of that scene where she licks the cage in the Bee Gees trailer, and then we're back into the courtyard with the team assembled, and Harley gets her funny lines about the voices. Scott Eastwood gets a center-of-the-frame shot, suggesting that perhaps he's just a little bit more than just a background extra, supported by his fist bump shot later. They no-sell Harley's joke with everyone being deadpan to Harley's madness, and let's just pause to note that their prison 
scrubs say Site Bravo, which reinforces the idea that this is a military detention camp similar to Gitmo's detention areas, Camp Delta, Echo, Iguana, and the infamous X-Ray. If the Suicide Squad becomes its own franchise, there's a potential for future members being sourced from other sites. We get shots of helicopters taking fire while flying over the Chicago River, specifically over the Clark Street Bridge. Although we know that this is Midway City, which is essentially DC's stand-in for Chicago. We see a downed aircraft, and then a truck punched through completely by this alien black icker. And it's in front of a Dunkin' Donuts, which is bearing that urban search and rescue X code popularized by FEMA during Hurricane Katrina. Everyone has slight variations, but in broad strokes, the system starts with a slash, meaning that a search is in progress. Then when the search is completed, a second slash makes it an X, with each quadrant being filled with key information. The top quadrant contains the date and the time, and here we're talking about June 2nd, which further pins down our timeline for Suicide Squad if taken at face value. And in the right quadrant, it describes the search or identifies any hazards. Here, no means that there was a search and there are no hazards. The left quadrant describes the rescue team or the search party. And here I can't make out what it says after the M. It might refer to some sort of Midway City agency, but more interesting is below it, it says TF3, which likely stands for Task Force 3. So if Task Force 3 has already been through here, then why does Task Force X need to follow and what are they getting themselves into? How long has this been going on that they had time to get the approval to assemble the squad and send them out. Food for thought. Finally, the bottom quadrant will tally those who are found or rescued. Here, 2DB means a pair of dead bodies were found. Now, the exterior of the Dunkin' Donuts isn't wrecked or damaged or torn apart like the truck. So how and why were two dead found inside a closed and innocuous structure? In other words, whatever killed them can enter buildings without damaging them and kill just the people inside. We see a helicopter going down, and then we see some of the squad reacting with awe, fear, astonishment, and worry. But of course, Harley emitting a amused, childlike, whoa! Around them are giant slabs of broken concrete, so whatever they're facing has the power to create such effects. We get Captain Boomerang and Slipknot nodding knowingly and conspiratorially at one another, possibly with a plan to escape. But if you want to add one more layer onto it, I imagine... Digger is manipulating or goading Slipknot into trying to escape just to test out whether the bombs in their heads are real. If Slipknot thinks they're on the same page and then tries to escape and loses his head, now the Suicide Squad are fully committed to this crazy mission, and that seems like the kind of thing that might upset Katana if she is indeed Flag's bodyguard and on board with the success of this mission. We see them move through a subway station that is covered in more of that alien black icker, and then Deadshot and Flag fire firing at something in the ruins of a large building. Deadshot is firing with both his wrist guns and handguns akimbo, which is an interesting way to throw more lead downrange. And then we get a shot of Harley impishly grinning and waving as she ascends in a glass elevator alone. And that level of independence and autonomy suggests that they've reached an accord about the mission at this point. Otherwise, you absolutely do not let Harley go anywhere alone and unsupervised. We see the squad fighting the eyeball-covered soldiers, 
seen in set photos long ago. It's just a glimpse, but I am so very happy that it doesn't trigger my tripophobia like I feared that it might. Yes, an eyeball-covered soldier is completely gross and horrifying, but depending on how you execute it can make all the difference between a properly creepy monster and something that makes people want to leave the theater. It seems pretty easy to assume that this is the fate of Task Force 3 and or all the other military entities that preceded or came with them. So we've seen the foot soldiers, but what are the larger threats? And here's where the trailer takes a brief thematic turn towards our villains. Well, our other villains, you know what I mean. First, we have the Joker hooking somebody with the head of his cane, saying something that out of context is innocuous, but from his mouth always sounds like some kind of threat. I can't wait to show you my toys. In a film with cannibals, killers, and demons, a demented clown prince is still completely terrifying. I'm not going to break down the Golden AK, Tux, and Johnny Frost. I think that's all been covered pretty well elsewhere. I'm curious about the compulsion to tear out every piano key and lay them out with all his weapons and riches. And stepping back a moment, we hear Enchantress speak for the first time. So we know how the accent is going to play. And again, it's saying something innocuous out of context, but which comes off as a threat. Let's do something fun. Joker wants to show you his toys and Enchantress wants to do something fun. So where's the harm in that? What are we all worried about? So Enchantress seems to be confronting Waller in Washington, and specifically the White House. The screensaver on the TV is the official White House logo. Although you can't make out the text, it says simply, The White House, Washington. Now consider for a second all the settings that are in play so far. We have Bell Rev in Louisiana, we have Gotham, we have Washington, D.C., and Midway. Suicide Squad is absolutely fleshing out the world of the Justice League universe. I'm curious if this means that Enchantress can teleport or otherwise travel quickly. Now, about that visual effects, that dark smoky aura flowing off of her makes anything seem possible, which is kind of part of my problem with magic, but maybe we'll figure out enough rules to determine when or if a bullet to the head might be the answer. (laughs) And I think they're going to dial that aura in perfectly so that she doesn't look like Pigpen, but as somebody whose foot is jamming open the doorway to hell. Traces of cinder, ash, and smoke coming through that gap. It's completely sinister, and it's difficult to imagine her on the squad, especially when we just haven't seen any footage of her with them. But moving on, all we get is Boomerang raising an eyebrow with a dumb look on his face, and I'm charmed. It's ridiculous how much he steals the show. I want to see more of him, but even as I'm saying that we get Katana's Soul Taker sword definitively showing off its magic and suddenly I want to see more of that with Wonder Woman in Batman v Superman establishing magical tools weapons and artifacts the Soul Taker is consistent with that reality and imagine trying to get here from the Man of Steel teaser trailer 1 where the only element of the fantastic was a distant shot of a man taking off into the sky again we cannot take for granted just how far Batman v Superman is going to take us so that Suicide Suicide Squad and the rest of the JLU work and make sense. Okay, we get a ton of quick cuts and then a comedy beat from Boomerang stinking a beer. And it's just weird how they're going to make this bug-eyed scumbag lovable. And so far it's working. And we also get a little clear shot of some of his smaller boomerangs on his arm. And then we get a close-up of Katana's mask, revealing a meaningfully cracked pattern that listeners of this show will understand the significance of. We won't go into it now, but also an especially large crack which continues into a scar on her face which just feels like it's imbued with storytelling that we don't necessarily ever have to get into it's just a nice touch and then her eyes go completely black embracing the supernatural fully 
We get Harley hamming it up as people dance around her, and then a gorgeous shot of a helicopter deploying countermeasures. It's clear that Midway is a battle zone and difficult to enter even by air. Even more quick cuts. I think I'm going to reserve on the subway slicer because it seems like spoiler territory for now. But again, Doomsday lets us catch and accept a glimpse of something like this. Without getting into the identity, at least from this trailer, the subway slicer seems to be the source of the black icker that we've seen up to now. Joker, Frost, and his henchmen intimidate a worker who's wearing a hairnet. I want that to be a clue, but I'm not sure if it is. We often associate hairnets with consumables, but they can also be used for clean rooms or in safety when dealing with machinery. If we're dealing with consumables, could Midway's citywide woes be because of the Joker? Eh, maybe. But then what does the subway slicer have to do with any of it? We get Croc attacking Katana, reinforcing the idea that internal strife among the squad is going to be a big part of the story. And then we get Harleen in a blue shirt, plainly upset. Now from set photos and leaks, we have more context for this, but for the purposes of this trailer, all we need to know is that she's wearing a blue shirt. We get Deadshot gunning down more eyeball soldiers who are holding guns, but not clearly using them. So it's still unclear whether they have any kind of intelligence then we get the subway slicer taking on troops while leaving that black icker in his wake diablo letting loose and kicking open the door for all sorts of metahumans within the justice league universe and a ton of quick cuts there's an absolutely gorgeous shot of joker diving into a vat of ace chemicals and retrieving the recently baptized harley it's short but it encompasses the fearless recklessness of this joker and how these two are entwined a million more quick cuts the most notable being the squad before these horned figures with glowing eyes and white tattered rags dancing around a glowing pillar of CGI, which is perhaps erupting from a portal to hell. What? <laughs> I guess I'll point out Harley swinging because she seems to be taking fire with red tracers hitting all around her. And earlier in the trailer, we saw Johnny Frost firing a minigun. So perhaps Joker is entangled into the main threat and not just a flashback character. And of course, we end on a comedy bit. We're bad guys, it's what we do. And we bring back the logo, updated with that CD flickering neon lighting, with our five top-billed actors, Will Smith, Jared Leto, Margot Robbie, Joel Kinnaman, and Viola Davis. On the final screen, Courtney Hernandez, Akinyo Abaje, Baron Holt, and even Eastwood are credited, but not De Levine, Fukuhara, Beach, Parrick, Common, or Affleck. I don't know what that means, but we're done. <laughs> I'm totally excited at where this is going and how it fits into the Justice League universe. If you break down the squad and consider each and every one that Batman had to have brought in, you understand why Batman has the experience and the fearlessness that he has when facing down Superman. Batman isn't beside himself because he's seen metahumans and the uncanny and the impossible, and he's beaten it into submission and thrown it in jail. And along those lines, people might ask, well, why isn't Superman being called in to tackle this crisis? And that's a natural question and one of the things that the filmmakers of Man of Steel brilliantly avoided by not giving Superman flight until mere days before Zod forces his debut. If Superman has flight any earlier, it's a completely legitimate question to start asking if he should be intervening. The late development of flight sidesteps the issue as being a largely irrelevant impossibility in most cases. However, 
after Man of Steel, you might ask those questions. And while we won't know for sure until watching the movies, in terms of early speculation, you can have all the standard tropes that prevent Superman from being available. But based on what we've seen in this trailer, I think there are more grounds to object to Superman's involvement. At a minimum, we know that this is a threat that can turn your allies against you. That appears to be what happened to the earlier task forces. And between Wonder Woman and Aquaman, it's possible that we know that Superman has a magic vulnerability. And magic appears to be what's plaguing Midway City. So can you imagine the consequences of sending Superman to save the day only to have him turned into a thrall of the enemy? At least with the Suicide Squad, should that occur, all you've got to do is push a button to end the betrayal. With Superman, you're basically screwed. So I can completely understand the government saying that they do not want Superman anywhere near this mess. Maybe. And on that note, as a Superman fan, I am so excited by the possibilities of this shared Justice League universe. It can be easy for fans to tend to be conservative. They like what they like, and then that handicaps and limits their imaginations to only variations of what they've already seen before. And those stories absolutely have merit, but they've already been told. Over and over, Superman's definitive stories tend to be the ones where he's basically the only magic or source of awe in the world. And while there's certainly something powerful to that, it's been done. It's been done for almost a century now. It's time to tell shared universe Superman stories that we could never tell before. And that's where this is headed and the potential that they tapped into by going right into Batman v Superman after Man of Steel. This is a new age for DC films. Okay, I think I've rambled on long enough. Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff and if you've been sticking with me, hopefully you do too. I'm genuinely grateful for each and every listener and hope you'll join us at manofsteelanswers.com. That way, if you have a question you want answered or an insight you want to share or commentary to make, you can post in the comments for all your like-minded apologists to see. Or you can email me at mosaic at manofsteelanswers.com. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. I'm Doc, your DC Films Justice League Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. Answer, son.
turned away from it all like a blind man. Sat on a fence, but it don't work. Keep coming up with love, but it's so slashed and torn. Son.